you are listening to the Grace Capital Church Podcast. We are pastors here at Grace Capital Church. Uh, the focus of my ministry is behind the walls at the New Hampshire State Prison and for women, for women and for men. I don't know if everyone's aware, but we do have... A, it's okay to clap. It's okay. We, uh, we have a great team from Grace Capital Church that goes behind the walls, and we're ministering at any given time to anywhere between 35 and 50 inmates. And we've been doing that for about five years, five, six years now. And uh, I recognize some of our team members, and I won't point them out, but some of the folks that we've ministered to that are at our church and come regularly and that are working hard and have worked hard to devote their lives to the Lord. And you don't even know who they are because they've done such a great job of giving themselves and surrendering themselves to the Lord. They're no different than who we are. So yeah, so God has been doing great things in our ministry. And if you're curious about our ministry, I'd love to talk to you about it and be happy to tell you what we're doing there. But what we're doing here today is uh, our series, our current series is actually what hopefully we're all doing in journaling and journaling through the Bible. And if you're not doing that, I want to encourage you to give that a try. We have journaling groups that we're doing throughout the week and just kind of jump in and join one because I know that I've grown so much from journaling. In fact, journaling, we have a Thursday morning group and you're, you're all welcome to join in. We'll take over Panera and just come in. And it's a highlight of my week. And I have, I do taxes as a profession. So uh, even during that busy season, I go because that's like my kind of time with with the group and I just love it. And I've adopted that as my morning time with the Lord to do journaling. So I hope that this is something that you can engage and grow in with your time with the Lord. But uh, it was very hard this week to pick something to preach on because uh, this week we're journaling through the book of Hebrews and also Isaiah. And it's like, how do you pick something? It's just one thing to talk about. But I uh, what God put on my heart this week is from Hebrews uh, chapter 5. So if you want to go there, you can. Uh, I'm going to jump around. I'm not going to give you time to go to the places I'm going to jump around. So if you want to check them out later, I'll blurt it out, but you'll have to, you'll have to find it some other time. But uh, today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. And this is the passage that we're going to go through this morning. And uh, from, from Hebrews, by the way, we don't know. We're not sure who the author is. It uh, could be Paul, it could be uh, Barnabas, could be Apollos, we're not really sure. But the book was written to a uh, Jewish audience, we believe, and these Jewish, this Jewish audience was under persecution and under a lot of pressure, and some of them were starting to fall back. After hearing the good news, after hearing the gospel, some of them were starting to fall back into their old habits. And maybe, you know, we can relate to that, right? Sometimes we fall back into our old habits. And the book was written to encourage them. And the theme of the book is that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than any other religion that we can practice. Jesus is above all that, right? And then the book lays out the case that Jesus is greater. And from Hebrews chapter 5, is where I'm going to spend some time starting in verse 8. It says that even though Jesus was the son, uh, God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obeyed him. 
And uh, before I begin, I, I need to point out my beautiful wife because today is our 18th wedding anniversary. And, uh, and I, I'm still very much in love, and I won't speak for her, but I, I, all indications are good. But one of the things that we learn, one of the things you learn, if you're not married yet, maybe, maybe you already know this, but if you're married, you definitely know this, is one of the things you learn is you're, we're not perfect. Right, you learn that right away. You know, we're not perfect, but you know, we love each other. But there are things that, you know, that, that start out, you know, when you're in love, you know, it's first, it's the kind of uh, the chemical, emotional, you know, love that starts out, right? And love is blind and you don't see everything. Everything, like when I first met Maggie, everything she did was perfect. And I just like, didn't see everything. I just saw like everything she did, I loved it, right? But after, you know, being married for a while, it's like, you know, I began to see other things. You know, it's like, did she, you know, did she like snore like that in the beginning? Like when we, and, so, and I, I had my habits too, you know, but, and you know, we saw other things, but you know, love develops and it develops in a way that, you know, into a bond where, you know, from doing life together and we see the imperfections in each other, but then, you know, one of the amazing things that I have in my life, and this is truly amazing, because even through my imperfections, Maggie sees the good, you know, the bad and the ugly of who I am, but she still loves me. Isn't that, that's amazing. She's, she loves me and she accepts me and she receives me. She gives me grace. And we learn to do that to each other. We love each other still in, in spite of those things that are not very pretty, that other people don't get to see, we still love each other. And that intimacy is a gift. And that intimacy is a gift from God that he meant for us to have in a special relationship with a spouse. But there's another special relationship that we meant, our most important relationship, to have that intimacy, and that's a relationship with him, right? We're meant to have a deep, intimate relationship with God. It's our most important relationship. But the basis of a relationship is to relate, is to be able to relate. Now, I can relate to Maggie because we're just kind of two people trying to figure out life and kind of going through things. And we have our personalities and those personalities connect together. But when you think about God, you know, how do we relate as finite beings? How do we relate to an infinite God who, by his word, speaks planets and galaxies and universes into existence, right? You know, how do we relate to a, a God who is perfect and holy and omniscient? You know, how do we relate to a God like that that we've sinned against and are separated from and whose right judgment hangs over us? And unless he acts to change that with no apparent reason to do so, Right? How do we relate? Now, I'm in a room full of Christians, so you know the answer. Right? You know the answer. John 3.16, God had a solution. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It was a rescue mission. Right? God sent Jesus to rescue us. But when we read our passage today, you know, why that way? You know, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, are there other ways that God could have solved the problem? 
Are there other ways that God could have rescued us? For example, could God have stayed on his throne and just done some spiritual kind of sacrifice and dropped a statue on the earth and said, worship this? Okay, you've seen in the sky that I've done something. Just kind of keep your eyes like, you know, Moses holding up the snake in the desert. Just kind of watch this and you'll be safe. Or maybe he could have sent someone else, right? Hey, you know, Archangel Michael, you know, come here, i got a mission for you. And sent the Archangel Michael to die for us, right? There are many things that God could have done to do this. But it's, you know, the message of John 3.16 is the message. But the, the method of the message is also the method, the message also. So you have John 3.16, but how God implemented that mission has great consequences for us. And Paul says this. He says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too full or too great to fully understand, and then you will be made complete with the fullness and power that comes from God. The method that God chose to implement his plan is so personal to every single person that when you experience it, when you see it, what God is doing, it changes you. I love that song that we just sang. It's so true. God's great love changes us. And when you examine the gospel, not just the message itself, but how God implemented it, it will change you in deep ways. Jesus, the Son of God, on his throne from the beginning, right, without any need at all, came down from heaven to become human. Just think about that alone. Jesus came to become one of us, but he didn't just take the form of a human being. He experienced being a person. Jesus came into the world as a baby, as a child, right? He cried. He had diapers, right? He needed to be changed. He teethed, okay? And then he lost those teeth, okay? He, he fell down trying to learn how to walk. You know, he cried. He hugged his mother, right? He had a favorite dessert. You know, Jesus, with his friends, he would laugh so hard that he would snort, right? We've all done, right? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus grew like one of us. He was one of us. He experienced being a person. It says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. God has intimate knowledge of humans, intimate knowledge of who and what we are. And this experience about being one of us has great meaning for all of us, great meaning about who we are and his relationship to us. In our passage in Hebrews 5, 8, it says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. I want to ask you a question. What makes a good leader? What makes a really great leader? You know, is it, uh, is it just education? You know, is it positional power? You all have a boss at work. You know, is it their position that makes them a great leader? You know, is it, is it wealth? Is it connections? You know, what does it take to take a group of people, a group of sinners like us, to turn away from their basic instincts, 
from the things that they can see to the things that they can't see to bring them to life. Is it those things? I mean, those are good things to have, but it's probably not enough, is it? I remember when I was in the military, I did six years, U.S. Army, and there are two types of officers in the Army. There's non-commissioned officers, you know, sergeants, staff sergeants, master sergeants, and then there are commissioned officers, you know, lieutenants and captains and majors. Non-commissioned officers come up through the ranks. They, they start out as privates. You know, they're in charge of nothing, not even themselves. And then they become in charge of twos and threes and fives and tens and twenties and fifties. And they kind of work their way up through their job. And then officers, they have a different path. They go to college and then officers candidate school. And then they come in into the field being in charge of tens and fifties and hundreds, right? But when you're in a pressure situation and you're sitting there with a staff sergeant and a second lieutenant who's still reading out of the field manual, who are you going to follow? NCO. You got it. Of course you are. And no offense to second lieutenants out there, right? If you're one or have been one, but even the second lieutenants know that. Because when you're under gunfire, you're going to follow the guy who's been in that foxhole before, right? You want to follow the guy who's leading the charge, who's been in the charge before, right? You're going to follow somebody when you're in a storm, right? When you're walking through troubled times, you want to follow somebody who's been through troubled times, right? And when someone's telling you to do things that may bring you in the storm, that may bring you into suffering, you want to have confidence that that person has been in a storm and has been through suffering. That's Jesus. That's the kind of leader that will follow, that will bring us into those storms. Isn't it better to have a leader that's seen battle and has been tested? That's our award. Jesus, our servant leader, he came, he said, not to be served, but to serve. And he reveals God's grace for all people, and he delivered a gospel of grace to all who would believe, and he modeled what it means to be obedient to the Lord under pressure. In the years of his ministry, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him on the cross. He knew it, right? He knew it was going to happen. And the night before he was arrested, he knew the suffering that was going to come to him, and he prayed. He knew that he was going to be betrayed, deserted, and rejected, that he was going to be ridiculed, railroaded, and brutally beaten. And then he was going to be scourged and nailed to a cross. And he was going to hang on that cross until his body literally collapsed. And then the real suffering would begin. Because Jesus, who Isaiah called the man of sorrows, would then begin to take on the sin and suffering and sorrows of the world in his body, that he would begin to see the worst, the worst of every person, whoever lived in every generation, would come upon him. And in that time, on that cross, for the first time in his eternal existence, he would be isolated and separated from the Father. And he would take on himself the condemnation of the world, the condemnation for all that sin that was intended for us. <coughs> Jesus would suffer on that cross for us. 
It says in Luke 22, in verse 41, that he walked away about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed to the Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want it to be your will, but not mine. And then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. I never, I never saw that until I prepared for today. That he was so weak in that moment from the weight of that coming suffering that an angel had to come down and strengthen Jesus. Jesus, who had been through three years of opposing the Pharisees who were trying to kill him and the opposition of the people that were coming after him and put, trying to stop him from what he was doing. In this moment, he was so stressed that he needed an angel to strengthen him. And after the angel strengthened him, he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And do you know that that was actually blood that came out? I read up on it. It's called, a, and I'm going to murder this uh, definition, but it's hematidrosis. It's when you're so stressed and when you're contemplating so hard on something that their capillaries in your, in your vessels break and they mix with the sweat glands and you literally sweat blood. It's a rare condition. They did a study on it in the late 20th century and there were 76 cases of people that they found actually sweat blood under extreme duress. Jesus in agony in the form of a man like us in his flesh asked the Father to take this cup of suffering for him. And I believe that if God had come up with plan B that he would have taken it in that moment, right? If God had said, okay, let's go with the statue, that Jesus would have said, amen, right? He would have said, okay. Or if, you know, God had said, hey, let's send the angel. And Jesus was the son of God. He could have said, you know what? I've taken this as far as we need to. Bring the angels down, been ministered to, and ascended to heaven. But he didn't do that. Jesus, for our sakes, surrendered himself to the will of God. And he went to the cross for us. Now, in verse 8, when it talks about learning obedience, it's not learning in the sense that Jesus didn't know what suffering was, right? And it doesn't mean that he wasn't aware, didn't have full knowledge of what, he was, go what was going to happen. When this verse talks about learning, it's talking about the con in the context of experience, right? Direct experience and testing and being perfected for something. So there's, there's, there's possibility, you know, of being something. There's actuality, and, there, and there's the potential to be something. Jesus wasn't the sinless son of God until he was tested, right? Jesus needed to be tested in his obedience to God, just like he wasn't sinless until he was tested in the desert. He went into the desert, and at his weakest point, Satan tested him. And he came out, and he passed that test. He experienced temptation, and he passed the test. It strengthened him for the things to come. Jesus was not obedient to the Father until that obedience was tested with the weight of suffering. And Jesus passed that test. It says in verse 5, so in this way, God qualified him. God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the perfect eternal salvation for all those who obey. Because Jesus wasn't a theoretical high priest. He wasn't a theoretical, obedient, perfect, sinless son of God. He was the actual, tested, perfect, obedient, sinless son of God. 
because he came from his throne in heaven and submitted himself to the Father and went through the same pain, suffering, temptation that we went through and submitted himself to God's will. And now the idea of a high priest, it does explain it in Hebrews chapter 5. And our, those of you that are, I call them recovering Catholics, no insult mention, meant there. But, you know, you know what a high priest is, right? A, a, a priest is someone that mediates between God and man, right? A priest is someone that goes before God and he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. And, and then he represents God to the people, explaining to people about God. What well, says Jesus, our glorious Savior, he was perfected or made perfect in that role, our high priest in heaven, not just because of his sacrificial death, but because of his perfect, obedient, sacrificial life. Jesus was made perfect as our high priest in heaven because he reveals God to us. He doesn't tell us about God. He reveals God. And he's our perfect priest representing us because he is obedient to God, living a perfect, sinless life. And he himself is our perfect sacrifice, right? He is perfected so that we, he can be the source of salvation for us. It says in Hebrews 2 that God for whom and through everything was made chose to bring many children into glory and it is only right that he should be made uh, through his suffering a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. So what does this mean for us, right? What does this mean for us that God chose this method of bringing us to salvation, that he chose his son, his only son, to come down from his throne to earth, to be one of us, to experience being human, and then to prove himself by going through suffering on our behalf and being obedient to the will of God. What does that mean for us, that God chose this method? Well, it means three things. First, it means that we can relate to him, that God is relatable, right? This God of the universe came down from heaven to be one of us so that we can relate to him, that he has been tempted in every way as we have, that he shared our pain, our joy, our darkest moments, our weaknesses, and he understands us. And we can understand him because he has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand in a very deeply personal way. We can relate to God and he knows us. Second, in this method that he chose, and he shed his blood for us, the perfect sacrifice, there can be no more doubt, no more doubt, any honest examination of what God did on our behalf, there can be no doubt that God loves us. There can be no doubt of the intimate love that God has for every person, that his intentions are good, and that he can be trusted for every promise that he's made. If he has given up his son, what else would he not give for every promise that he's given you? What more could God give than his son? We can trust God because he has given us his all already. The third thing that God demonstrates is his desire for an intimate relationship with every person. Right? An intimate relationship with every person, with you. God wants a deep, personal, intimate relationship with you. Now, how deep is deep? How deep of a relationship does God want with you? Now, the way to kind of think about this is to look at the Old Covenant 
there was a uh, temple system and to look at how they kind of related to God in the Old Testament, everything revolved around the temple, right? The temple in Jerusalem. And when you look at the temple in Jerusalem, how it was built, there were different layers in that temple. And the outside, the outer courts of the temple is called the temple or the uh, courts of the Gentiles. And that's where anyone could go, right? Jews and non-Jews, you could even do business there. They kind of exchange money and you could buy sacrifices and all that. And uh, so you, anyone could go there. But as you kind of went further inside the temple, only Jews could go inside the temple. And no unclean Jews could go in, only clean Jews, right? So only the people of God who were clean could go inside that next level. And then as you kind of go further inside the temple, only priests, there was a court of the priests, only priests could go in there. So no one that wasn't part of the priesthood could go inside that inner part. And as you go further inside the temple, there's the holy place. And only certain priests could go inside the holy place, the ones who were assigned to take care of, of the holy uh, items of the temple. Only they could go in and take care of those items. Nobody else could go in there. And then inside the holy place, you had the most holy place. And that was a little, uh, a little place inside the holy place, and it was a veil that was an entrance to that place. And only the high priest could go in there. And he could only go in once a year to have sacrifices for the people. And now, that temple is gone. And we are the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And I want to ask you, how was your personal relationship with God? What kind of a personal relationship with God? Where does he reside in the temple of your heart? And I want to ask you, I can tell you where God wants to reside. And it's not in the outer courts. It's not in the court of the Gentiles, right, with your acquaintances, where Jesus is just one of many things. You got your business and you got the people that you kind of see on the street. That's not where he belongs. And he doesn't even want to be in the court of the women, you know, the court where you have your friends, where you kind of hang out. And we have this kind of limited trust relationship. You know, God doesn't want to be there. God doesn't even want to be in the holy place where maybe only a couple of people have been, your spouse, right? Or maybe one or two friends that you've ever had in your life where they've seen all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In all honesty, Jesus didn't come down on his throne to die on a cross for that kind of relationship with you. Jesus came to be in that most holy place. Jesus came down from his throne not just to tear the veil in the temple so that you could come to him. He came to tear the temple in your heart so that he could get to you. Jesus wants a deep, intimate relationship with you. Now that's scary to some of us, right? I was afraid because there's a lot of things in there that we're afraid to share with our Lord, with a holy God that we're trying to relate to. But on that night, when Jesus did come down on the cross, he saw you. He saw it all. On that night, when all that sin passed from you to him in his body, 
he saw the worst of you. He saw the worst of all of us. He didn't just see it. It passed in him. He experienced it, the worst of you. And the news of the gospel is this, that he still loves you, that he still accepts you, and that he's calling you into a deeper relationship with you, one that is so intimate, it will meet the deepest needs of your heart. And as Paul said, you cannot fully grasp it, but when you do, it will make you full and complete, and you'll have all the power and life that God can bring for you. Today, I want to ask you to tear down the veil where Jesus wants to be in your heart and to let him come into that most holy place. And I want to close with this passage from Hebrews chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he has faced all the same testings that we do, yet he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you didn't just send somebody. You didn't just give us an image that you came yourself to rescue us, to penetrate the hardness of our hearts, to dwell with us so that you can lift us up and breathe life into our spirits and we can be with you in a personal relationship for eternity. And with all our heads bowed, Lord, I want to ask if there's anyone here, if you don't know Jesus in this way, if you have never asked God into your heart, this God who came to die on the cross in your place so that you could be recon reconciled with him, for the forgiveness of your sins, that if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you don't have to make a show. We're not looking to do anything with you or to you. But if you would please open your hearts today and tear down that veil and let him in. Make this the day of your salvation. Pray this prayer with me right now. Holy God, Holy Lord, I want to know you. I want to open my heart to you. I've been avoiding you because I know that I've done many things in my life that I'm ashamed of, that I'm afraid of, and I just aren't sure that I can trust you with it. But today, I want to trust you. I want to open my heart to you. I want to make you my Savior and my Lord. And I don't know everything that, that means, but I want to make that step today and ask that you'll show me how to follow you for the rest of my life. And for those of you that are here, maybe you've kept Jesus in the outer courts of your life. Maybe you've never trusted him in an intimate, personal relationship where you have just opened up everything to him like you've never opened up to a human being in your life. And let him see all the unfiltered thoughts, 
Let him see all the raw thoughts, the temptations, the fears, the insecurities that he's already seen. And just let him into that most holy place in your heart. Father, I just pray with you that this will be the day that you tear down all the walls and let him into that place and experience the full life that God has for you. If you prayed that today, I pray that you'll come forward after our service and share that with our prayer team so they can know that and pray for you. Being part of our church family, being part of God's family is not a secret society. Come on out into the God's light and be part of a family. God, we thank you for this time that we're sharing together because we love you, Lord, and we want to experience the life that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Capital Church podcast. If this ministry has impacted you and you would like to partner with Grace Capital Church to impact the communities around you, please join us at gccnh.com forward slash partners.